Hey listeners, welcome back to episode 11 of Creme de la Crime podcast. This podcast is strictly dedicated to the facts and theories surrounding unsolved disappearances. This is done out of respect for the loved ones and of the missing. On the list this week is the state of Hawaii. According to WorldPopulationReview.com, Hawaii has 107 unsolved disappearances. It's important to keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Hawaii true crime. All right, before we jump right into it, I want to share a really awesome podcast with you guys called Crime Bay Podcast. And this podcast is hosted by Alicia, Katie, and Paige. And one thing I love about this show is not only are they super respectful and really great at presenting the stories, but they're also very factual and very funny. As a true crime podcaster, a lot of the topics that we're covering in this community can be very heavy, very dark. So I really appreciate shows that are able to make me laugh and lighten my spirits, even when they're talking about heavy topics. But I also appreciate that they don't do it at the expense of the victims. So I'm going to run their trailer for you right now. Hey, Bays. This is Alicia. This is Katie. And this is Paige. And we are Crime Crime Bay. Bay. We are a true crime podcast bringing you at least one episode a week. And we are going to cover a wide range of topics uh, varying from the more known, well-known stories, your serial killers, to the more lesser known um, stories such as supernatural myths legends cryptids yes we know you guys want to know about mothman Mm -hmm. who doesn't um and we're gonna be fun and humorous at the appropriate times too and sometimes the inappropriate and sometimes inappropriate (laughs) we got to make ourselves laugh to keep from crying you know sure you follow us on instagram tiktok twitter and facebook all at crime bay podcast Thank you so much. We look forward to uh, making you a bay. Thank you, bay. Hasta la pasta. So once again, that is Crime Bay Podcast. Go check them out on any platform you listen to your favorite podcast. And don't forget to go follow them on Instagram at Crime Bay Podcast. So this first case is about Loida Gabon Weidman. I can't confirm 100% that I have Loida's correct date of birth. Out of the few websites and articles that have shared her story, no one has ever listed her birthday. It is known that she was 39 years old at the time of her disappearance on May 13, 2012. I did, however, find a public record of a Loida G. Weidman from the same city in Hawaii in a deep Google search. 
The date of birth listed for this woman is October 2nd, 1972, and the current age is listed in correlation to the timeline of Loida's known age. Like I said, I cannot confirm for sure that this is her correct date of birth, but I thought the public record was interesting enough to mention. It is known that Loida was born in the Philippines and had three young sons at the time she disappeared. Their names are available in an article on Google, but I personally prefer not to share the names of surviving children of missing persons on a public platform. I can tell you that at the time of her disappearance, it was stated that her sons were 11, 8, and 5 years old. So today they would be around 21, 18, and 15. Loida was last seen leaving her home at 9.30 p.m. in Waipahu in Honolulu, Hawaii on May 13, 2012. She was driving her gold 2003 Saturn Ion with the Hawaii license plate number NBN186. That's N as in no, B as in boy, N as in no, 186. She was leaving to head to her job at a Kapolei care home, and when I GPS searched the distance from her home to this location, it showed that it was only 8.2 miles away, or about a 15-minute drive. I also read conflicting news articles, one stating Loida was a nurse, and one stating that she was a nurse's aide. But I couldn't find anything confirming for sure which one she was. Loida never arrived to her job, and she has never been seen or heard from again. Family and friends described her as a responsible individual and a reliable worker. People close to her also stated she would have never abruptly left without warning. Another really sad detail about this case is that Loida actually disappeared on Mother's Day. When Loida didn't come home at the usual 6.30 a.m., her mom, Aurora, started to worry. It was noted in an article by Star Advisor that her mom lived with her at this time and quickly contacted her brother, Junior. He stated that Loida was very prompt in her time returning home because she always took her children to school and then followed that by taking an adult foster care patient to a day facility. The family also found out that Loida had never shown up for work the night before, which concerned them even more because this was completely out of character for her. So just from this little bit we know about Loida, I think it's safe to say she was a very reliable person. Junior said he frantically drove around the city that morning, searching for any sign of Loida, thinking maybe she had possibly been involved in some sort of car accident. He also drove by her previous address in Capilay, where her ex-husband was actively living while out on parole, but he saw no sign of her or her car. The police interviewed her ex-husband within the first couple of days of her disappearance. They said he cooperated and was not considered a suspect. But don't worry, we're not even close to done with this guy yet, because I was able to find and go through all of the court documents related to his paroles, charges, and appeal denials. So I will share that with you once we get a little further. On May 16th, Three days after she disappeared, police called her brother about the finding of her car shortly before 6 p.m. It was reported that the car was found around 4.30 p.m. that day. 
It was found abandoned on Lehua Avenue near First Street in Pearl City, Hawaii. I also ran a GPS search of this location, and it's actually located in the opposite direction of Loida's work where she was headed. Pearl City is located 9.8 miles away from Kapolei, or a 17-minute drive on the highway. But from her home, it's only 2.6 miles away, or just a 10-minute drive down the road. Let me reiterate, it is 2.6 miles in the opposite direction of her work. Meaning, it's not like she just stopped on her way to work. She or someone had to go out of their way to go in the opposite direction to dump this car. Based on her car being found such a short distance from her home, I don't think Loida made it very far before someone intercepted her and dumped her car. I'll also post pictures on my Instagram of all the GPS map locations so all of you can get a clearer picture of what I mean by this and why it's so strange. From zooming in and examining the area on Google Maps, her car was dumped in a very open public street which I find odd since there would have been so many better places to dump it. I also didn't see any signs of an airport or any major transportation hubs located anywhere near this location. There is, however, a really long, notable bike route that is right at the street where the car was abandoned. The police brought in a bloodhound that traced Lloyd's scent from the car down this bike path. The trail led to some dumpsters, but authorities found nothing of interest in their search around this area. Police were quoted calling the disappearance suspicious because no cell phone, credit card, or airline flight activity was detected. Police also failed to locate her using the GPS on her cell phone. And it didn't state why they were unable to pull the location, So I'm not sure if the phone had been cut off or if they just didn't bother to pull it. Sergeant Kim Buffett from Honolulu Crime Stoppers was quoted saying, We're at a dead end. She called the case a really strange situation and said the last time Honolulu police had a similar case was in 2008 when Kimberly Jacobs disappeared. Kimberly's husband was the last person to see her and she was never heard from again. And I did actually look up this case and a little bit about it. Kimberly Jacobs to this day has still also never been found. Unfortunately, that's all the information that's available to the public about Loida and her disappearance. I feel like there are so many holes in the investigation. And I don't know if that's because it's ongoing and details were withheld by police or if the investigation just wasn't thorough. Some of the main questions I have are, when it says they searched in and around her vehicle, I'm curious as to what they mean by that. You know, did they do forensic testing, fingerprinting, DNA testing, or did they simply just look inside and around the vehicle? The statements made by police and the media regarding this part of the investigation are very vague as well as the bloodhounds tracking her scent to the dumpsters located on the bike trail. It's simply stated that police searched in and around these dumpsters, but that's all the details that were ever provided. 
None of the articles provided the location of these dumpsters or anything else about them. There's just so many things up in the air that we don't have answers to, but I tried to go as deep as I possibly could with what little was given. There have been no official suspects named in Lloyd's case, and no report stating anyone specific other than the ex-husband was ever questioned. So her ex-husband's name is Linnell Reginald Weidman. And in all the statements made by police, they really just briefly brush over this guy. There was even a statement by an investigator going so far as to say that he was very helpful when he was questioned. From just reading the news stories related to him, I didn't really originally find him suspicious, but then I found court documents and articles related to him that made me completely change my mind. You see, Linnell has an extensive criminal past. Court records show he has six prior convictions. These convictions, along with their conviction years, are as follows. Possession of a switchblade and second-degree robbery in 1986, kidnapping, burglary, and attempted murder in 1988, and harassment in 1999. The 1988 convictions that the attempted murder charge was from were actually from an incident that took place in 1985 at an apartment on South King Street. A parole administrator by the name of Tommy Johnson was quoted saying, It appears that he went to a young 24-year-old woman's apartment, knocked on the door, When the woman answered, he forced his way in. I believe he had a knife. A struggle ensued, but she was able to get away. I believe she was injured in the struggle. End quote. So now I want to walk you through Linnell's criminal history, but there were a lot of court documents, so I kind of just summed it up with the most important details the best that I could. On February 25th, 1988, Linnell was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. A short time later, the paroling authority set his minimum sentence to only 12 years. He was released on parole for the first time on October 28th, 1997. He stayed out of trouble with the law for almost a decade, but then on October 4th, 2007, he was sent back to prison for violating parole by going to the Philippines without permission from his parole officer. Lloyda filed for divorce in 2008 and got custody of their three boys. Lloyda, her mother, and the kids all moved in together at this time, and on January 26, 2010, Linnell was released on parole for a second time. They give this guy a lot of freaking chances. In July of 2011, a woman accused him of sexual assault, but she ended up deciding she didn't want to press charges. Before anyone does any victim blaming here, please remember what I've told you about Linnell so far. This is a scary guy, and I can't say that I blame her for not wanting to pursue charges against him, especially with the way these cases are typically handled anyways. Even though she didn't press charges, 
she did secure a temporary restraining order against him. The terms of his parole required that he disclose any interactions with law enforcement or the court system to his parole officer immediately, which he did not. He was also supposed to inform his parole officer when the Honolulu police questioned him about Loida's disappearance, which he also did not. His failure to inform his parole officer in both of these cases resulted in two violations of his parole. Linnell was arrested at his home in Kapolei shortly after 2 p.m. on Friday, May 18th, so only five days after Loida disappeared. The parole board was required to hold a hearing within 45 to 60 days. After the arrest directly after Loida's disappearance, media coverage about Linnell abruptly stops. Thankfully, like I told all of you, I was able to find the court documents for this time period. It turns out that the court ended up completely revoking his parole after his multiple violations, and Linnell was resentenced to life in prison. I read that he filed multiple motions of dismissal of the charges, but they were all denied. He remains in prison to this day and has never been charged or named a person of interest in Loida's disappearance. So I'm interested to just know how you guys feel about this. In my opinion, because of his extensive criminal history and not just because he has a criminal past, but because of what the charges were for. I'm just really surprised that the police brushed him off as a suspect so quickly, especially when no one has ever been publicly named other than him as someone that they spoke to. So definitely looking forward to getting all of your feedback about that part of the case. The last update I found from this case was five years ago, in May of 2017. A local Hawaii news outlet did an interview with her three boys, and although I am still not sharing their names, I wanted to share a few statements that were made by the oldest of the three in this interview. Again, this was five years ago, so he was 16 at the time of this interview, and he stated the following. I think about my mom pretty much every day. A lot of people take seeing their parents every day for granted when people like us don't see our mom. At one time, she was working two jobs to support us, and I guess that's where I learned to be a hard worker from, was my mother. He ended by saying that if his mom is out there, he wants her to know, quote, I really miss you and I want you to come home really bad, end quote. The boys all stated that their mom was a great cook and they missed the meals that she used to make for them and the family. Lloyda Weidman was last seen leaving her residence at 9.30 p.m. in Waipahu in Honolulu, Hawaii on May 13, 2012 when she was 39 years old. She was driving her gold 2003 Saturn Ion with the Hawaii license plate number NBN. 186. She was heading to her job, but she never arrived to work. Four days later, her car was found abandoned on Lehua Avenue near First Street in Pearl City, Hawaii, only a few miles from her home. 
A bloodhound then traced Lloyd's scent from the car down a well-traveled bike path to some dumpsters, which the authorities searched but found nothing of interest. Lloyd is an Asian woman with black hair and brown eyes. She is of Filipino descent, and at the time of her disappearance, she was five foot two and weighed around 135 pounds. Her case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Lloyd Weidman, please contact the Honolulu Crime Stoppers at 808 955 8300. All right, so now we're going to go back in time a little bit. This is the oldest cold case that I have covered to date. And what makes it also unique is that this involves the disappearance of two people. And it was actually a couple. And because the case is so old, there are no media videos where people are pronouncing their names because all of the information is strictly old newspaper clippings where I got all the information about this case when it was taking place. So from what I looked up, about how to pronounce these names. This story is about Lucy T. Pacheco and Albert A. Dematos. Thankfully, someone made a page dedicated to Lucy's disappearance that includes all of the official news article clippings that were released from this time regarding the disappearance of Lucy and her soon-to-be husband, Albert. Like I said, this case took place in 1965, so information and coverage is very limited, but I want to share everything that I could possibly find. There's really no background information known on these two other than the basics of their lives, but at the time of their disappearance, they both lived in Honolulu, Hawaii, and they were not too far from each other. At this time, Albert lived with his daughter and son-in-law, Mr. and Mrs. Don Clark. Don was a supervisor for the Hawaiian Telephone Company at this time. Albert was 73 years old and had previously retired from the post office. He had been married twice before and had been involved with a woman just a couple years before he met Lucy. Albert had made it known around Hawaii's Portuguese societies that he was actively looking for a new wife and he met Lucy around Thanksgiving of 1965. Lucy was 60 years old, and her husband, Lawrence Pacheco, had passed away in 1963. Lucy was known as a reliable, dependable woman who was never late. At the time they disappeared, Albert had eight children and Lucy had four. All of their children were adults, except Lucy's youngest daughter, who was a teenager at this time. The newspaper clipping was a little blurry in this spot of the article, but I believe it said her youngest daughter was either 15 or 16 at this time. Lucy and Albert had only known each other for three weeks when they decided to get engaged. On the day they were last seen, Don said that Albert left the home between 8 and 9 a.m. on December 9, 1965, 
and he was heading to go pick up Lucy and take her to the laundromat. He left in his gray-blue 1957 four-door Pontiac sedan with the license plate number 5A-3514. Around 2 p.m. that day, Lucy called her daughter and told her that she and Albert were going for a drive. She left a stew cooking on the stove, indicating she had planned to return to her home. She was also only wearing a muumuu and slippers at this time. And if you don't know what a muumuu is, that, that was like the thing at this time. So please go Google it if you want a good laugh. The family began to worry as the day went on, and they never returned. They thought maybe they had gone to a drive-in movie, but once it started getting really late, the family decided to call the police around 2 a.m. When they spoke to Lucy's daughter-in-law, she made the following statement. My mother-in-law is happy-go-lucky. She likes to help people. If you need her help, she's there. I've never seen her raise her hand or her voice to anybody. She was always making jokes, and she always called her family if she was going to be just a little bit late. End quote. The police initially didn't take the couple's disappearance seriously, thinking they had possibly eloped without telling anyone and would eventually return. Investigators became concerned after weeks passed with no sign of either of them or Albert's car. And you have to think at this time, it's 1965, so not getting a phone call is not that unusual because there weren't cell phones at this time. So you really have no way to contact someone other than their landline phone at this period of time. There's no email, no texting, no social media, so it also is kind of understandable why people weren't as worried as maybe we would be in the modern day when we didn't hear from someone. But once the couple remained missing, Don estimated his father-in-law's income and assets, and he came to the conclusion that Albert had between $700 and $800 with him when he disappeared. Don also stated that he had a $6,000 joint bank account with one of his sons. This money has never been touched since the day Albert disappeared. Albert was also expecting a good-sized check for an apartment building he had sold shortly before his disappearance. If he had any other money stashed away, the Clarks were unaware of it. It was said that Lucy had some money in her bank account as well. Her family couldn't recall how much, but Lucy's accounts have not been accessed since the day she disappeared. Both families were convinced the couple had been met with foul play, but the police still weren't convinced. The detective handling the case at the time was named Joe. He was quoted in a local newspaper on June 6, 1966, saying the following, I have a feeling they are still alive. I don't know why I feel that way, but I think they just went holo holo, which means to have a good time. If they were on this island, I think they would have been found. The missing car is a mystery, but we've got new cars missing that we can't find either. A nondescript car like that, 1957 Pontiac, could disappear too. 
A sales clerk at Sears Roebuck and Company believes she saw the couple in the store about a month after they disappeared. Police believed that the witness made the correct identification and that the couple was alive, but there was no actual proof to confirm the clerk's story. The family, however, didn't believe the couple was alive and had probably been robbed and murdered. After the disappearance, the family put up a $1,000 reward for any information leading to a solution to the mystery of what happened to Lucy and Albert. $1,000 may not sound like a lot now, but in 1965, this was a pretty hefty amount to put up for a reward. The news clipping stated the family was considering increasing that reward, but I never found anything confirming if they chose to or not. A news article released on March 24, 1966 had a statement from Captain Kenneth Cundiff, who at the time led investigations of missing persons. He was quoted saying, It is a mystery and definitely serious. He said three of his detectives conducted searches for three and a half months with little success. They found no trace of Albert's car or the couple. As far as investigators could tell, they never left the island because they had checked flights and shipping lines and had gotten no hits. Although both used prescription medications, police spoke with doctors and pharmacists on all islands and found nothing. Their bank accounts were also never touched again. On April 18, 1966, Another news article was released stating that a six-hour search had been conducted on the surrounding islands, but the search failed to find any trace of the couple or the missing car. The search involved 54 men from the fire and police departments, and they searched land, sea, and air. Radio commentator Jimmy Walker coordinated the event and said the search would continue on future weekends. Jimmy was quoted saying, we looked everywhere it was possible to go off the road. It had been speculated that maybe the couple had been involved in some sort of accident and had driven off the road and remained undiscovered. That is the last update that was available in this case. Their cases are no longer being investigated by law enforcement due to how much time has passed since they disappeared, but their families have never forgotten them. It isn't clear whether they left voluntarily together or if other factors caused their disappearances. To this day, their cases remain a mystery. Lucy Pacheco and Albert Demetos were last seen on December 9, 1965 in Honolulu, Hawaii. Albert picked Lucy up in a gray-blue four-door 1957 Pontiac sedan with the license plate number 5A-3514. At the time of her disappearance, Lucy was 60 years old, 5 foot 3, and weighed around 180 pounds. She is a Caucasian female with gray hair and brown eyes. She is of Portuguese descent and wears glasses. She was last seen in a muumuu and slippers. She took prescription medication, but all of her medicine was left behind when she disappeared. Albert was 73 years old, 5 foot 9, and weighed around 160 pounds. He is a Caucasian male, is bald, and also walked with a limp. 
He was also of Portuguese descent and also wore glasses. Their cases are classified as endangered missing. Even though there is no longer an official investigator or investigating agency, if you have any information regarding the disappearances of Lucy Pacheco and Albert de Matos, please contact the Oahu Police Department at 808 529 3111. Well, that's all I have for episode 11. But if any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and has never been found, and you would like their case covered on a future episode of this show, please reach out to me directly via email creme de la crime podcast seven at gmail.com. I do check this email every single day. You can also follow me on Instagram at creme de la crime pod, and you're welcome to message me there. But as always, don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off. (laughs) 